Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of Three Day Sea Things. Welcome back to you too. Hello. Hi. So, <laughs> got some good, got some good facts. <laughs> got some good facts today, huh? <laughs> great facts. Great facts. So, we have some interesting things to talk about. And I think, why don't we go with you, Veda, first? Because yours is our food thing for today. And I'm really... Really fascinated by what you found. Also, I just like to point out that for the first time in a while, Veda has brought a fact that's not going to make you like lean into your Xanax. So go for it. I know it's. Uh, I really tried to uh, stick to the topic at hand. <laughs> so my thing for today is about Indian Chinese cuisine and chicken Manchurian, which is a quintessential dish from Indian Chinese cuisine, is not found in China but it was invented in India along with its vegetarian versions, one of which is Gobi Manchurian. Uh, It was invented in the 70s, in 1975, by Nelson Wang, a chef um, who is the son of Chinese immigrants from Calcutta, uh, now called Kolkata. And, you know, in, in finding out, like, a little bit of, like, the history of how the dish was invented, um, you know, it was really interesting to learn a little bit about how Indian Chinese cuisine kind of originated and its history. There is very, very unique and incredibly popular. Like, uh, it's it's many surveys have showed that it's like the favorite like non-Indian cuisine for Indians. Um, and you it's so popular now um, that it's found on Indian menus, not just like Chinese restaurants in India, but like cafes and or tabas all over the country um so it's really really percolated it's the flavors and the dishes and there are very some very specific dishes like manchurian which are very unique to the cuisine this is so cool to me because i'd never china's right next door to india but i've never really thought about the chinese people in india how did they get to kolkata so in the 18th century, Calcutta, as it was known then, the British East India Company made it the capital of colonial India. And as a port, it was also really, you know, crucial in the trading routes between Britain, India and China. Um, And Calcutta is on the east. So it's close, closer to China. And so around that time, Chinese migrants started moving to Calcutta for work. And eventually, at least two like known Chinatown areas um, that were populated by Chinese immigrants. And eventually in one of these areas, Chinese immigrants who, came, who were actually Hakka Chinese immigrants, they were working in the tanneries. Um, many accounts kind of trace the invention of these kinds of food flavors to their history. And they eventually set up restaurants there, um, mixing flavors um, that they brought with the Indian palate. And several generations later, their descendants continue to experiment. And Nelson Wang is actually, uh, you know, a descendant of such immigrants from Calcutta. That's amazing, because I think, I don't think we talk enough about people who have immigrated or moved to India, even if it's been like years and thinking. We don't think enough. Right. Sorry. I was reading up a little bit about the Chinese community in India. 
and it seems like uh, even before the 1800s i found some references to there was apparently there was this one story that chinese people f- uh, would be kidnapped by the portuguese and um there was this there was a story of this one guy chinali i think or chinali uh, who was supposed to be this boy who was kidnapped and like essentially sold as a slave and he uh, ended up coming to india as a slave and he has a, a kind of a similar story to your uh, malikambar yeah so he became like a uh, he became like a friend to a, a king in kerala i think or like a local uh, ruler in kerala and they essentially were used to um, i mean they became kind of like a like an awesome duo that used to uh, strike terror in the heart of their opponents yeah he became obsessed with beating the portuguese so he like was adopted by um a muslim family raised you know practicing islam and then kind of became part of this like ruling family's mission to like kill all these portuguese colonialists it was kind of interesting wow that obviously makes sense you know that considering there were neighboring civilizations that there would have, yeah. would be a lot of through history a lot of connections um i think you know there are multiple instances of you know people travel writers coming from china to india and discovering it and documenting it so absolutely that makes sense and i think it you're right that we um often don't think about you know that cross cultural connection more i think what's interesting about this point in time is that from here on there was like sort of a consistency in the yeah. immigrant community and several generations continued to keep their culture and kind of mix it with the, their new home in India and and it's really interesting how like this food that is so so popular um in India is you know really it should be credited to that i first came across an article about the history of indian chinese food a few years ago and it made me think about how indian chinese food is so different than what the chinese food you find in the us um and just like the flavors and the and the dishes and when i started researching for this episode i realized that a lot of that is because of um the immig- chinese immigrants that came to the US they came to California in the mid 19th century first and the ones who moved to India and it they came from different regions they came from they had different um palates um the Hakka Chinese um were largely the community that uh developed a lot of the Indian Chinese cuisine in India American Chinese food is especially initially was largely um Cantonese food and the flavors are different like Cantonese cuisine is from southern China it has more subtle and mild flavors it developed into having um making it more acceptable to the American palate making it sweeter um and the Hakka cuisine um is more salty and fragrant it has the savory umami flavor and it became with they mixed it into developed it into like a spicy chili oriented flavorful dish for the indian palate so it's just <laughs> so interesting to see how that develops so chicken manchurians created in the 70s but the first chinese restaurant in india is much earlier right it's in the 20s i believe right 
in the 20s. There, there were a, se- a couple of different restaurants that I came about around that time. Um, one of them was called Nanking. It apparently was very famous, like Dilip Kumar, yeah. the Bollywood actor, used to go there. And then later in the 70s, the Taj Bombay had a Chinese restaurant. And that was more, had more Sichuan kind of flavors and like spicy flavors. And so people who frequented that restaurant were like, oh, like, what is this? Like the demand for it went up. And what ended up happening is that people like the street vendors or like the street food kind of uh, restaurants started making these kinds of dishes more. Um, So it was around this time that Nelson Wang basically came up with this Manchurian idea. In Food 52, the writer Anada Rati tells his story and she described that he was basically working as a caterer uh, in Bombay at the cricket club. And um, one of the customers asked for some like a different kind of a dish and he deep fried uh, the chicken coated with cornstarch and mixed it with, you know, the garlic ginger and chili peppers. And that's how it became really popular. And apparently it went viral according to (laughs) that time. (laughs) But that there's two really interesting things to me about that. One, it starts off at the Dodge where people, you know, which is kind of higher end, not everybody has access to that restaurant. But because it's so popular there, the like, quote, unquote, like common man is like, no, we want this too. And it's kind of interpreted on the street food level. But the second thing that's really interesting about the Manchurian thing to me is that they took the basis of like a lot of North Indian cuisine, right? They took the garlic, ginger, chili, tarka that you make at the bottom and then added soy sauce. And they were like, it's ours now. It's in, like, you know, like it's it's a really interesting way to like co-opt flavors from a different community, but keep that like going back to our Krisha Shok episode, keep that nostalgia for like the base of a food you already recognize so that it is palatable. Yeah, I was reading that you know, it's uh, the Indian Chinese food is, is perhaps so popular because it has, you know, several of these elements, as you're saying, but it's like this familiarity and foreignness. So like familiarity with loving like a gravy kind of thing, tomato based, spicy food uh, with these spices you mentioned, and then something which is a little bit different, maybe having the soy sauce or um, certain different spices, vinegar, etc. And then eventually, they also, a lot of these dishes um, in this cuisine use Indian spices as well, like garam masala. So um, there really is that melding of these ingredients. And also, we've kind of renamed it, right? So Sichuan in India is called as Shizwan, which is just a twist on whatever <laughs> we did. Um, so I found that quite fascinating. And I was just reading about how the Chinese came to India. There used to be a Chinatown in Mumbai, which I don't think many people are aware of. It's in the southern part of uh, the city in Mazgaon. So there used to be a lot of uh, Chinese families who lived there and they came from Canton which is now Guangdong um, in China in South China uh, so they came as businessmen traders dentists uh, a lot of references to shoemaking so they there was a kind of a thriving uh, Chinese community in Mumbai 
and uh, there's there's actually a temple it's called uh, it's the Quan Kung Tai Shek so there's a chinese temple there so they they celebrate chinese new year they have like a little parade in that uh, in that lane and i was reading this article I, i think on homegrown or somewhere which was like where this chinese exchange student at i think iit bombay or somewhere happened to be there and he was so happy to to find people of his uh, country there and he was like oh this is so nice i i, I feel less homesick now so that was kind of uh, it was really nice to read it's like an indian student in the us like finding murray hill or edison <laughs> or like a diwali celebration or something so that's that's really interesting i didn't know that so i also read that some of the early ones also went to madras which is now chennai some of the early chinese settlers so they had made their way like kind of deep into the indian mainland and it's interesting that we don't really talk about these chinatowns anymore that makes sense because these are all ports so yeah that makes sense it's really interesting i want to go back to something veda was saying much earlier about how like you can find indian chinese food on every menu it's really expected to the point where like when i was meeting with the caterer about the food served at my wedding i didn't have any what's colloquially called chindian food on it and they were like ma'am the the your guests will be really upset if you don't have something from like the you know like the asian palate like they were like at every meal you have to have a noodle or like a chicken mochi or a gobi mochi and i was like people are coming to india for a wedding why would they care and they were like no no ma'am your indian guests will be very upset so i was like okay put whatever you want so like it's that ingrained into the culture that it's expected right like and then i thought about it and my favorite stall at any indian wedding is the hakka noodle stall like that's the best one always so it's just become a day to day part of our life and i don't think many indians know where this food actually came from and i think a lot of americans don't know about this either like how much we we eat this kind of food um and i think it's only now in the us maybe over the last few years um there have become there've like some restaurants have opened that specifically have um indian chinese cuisine um because it is so distinct from like american chinese food um that you can get it and i think they're very very popular um it was like i remember one opened up in the boston area when i was in high school or, or college and my family was so excited we're like now there's an indian chinese restaurant there was one in new york and then they had opened a second one in boston and then both yes, shut down i've i've been to the one in new york it's it was very i mean also like you know immigrant kids or immigrant families were looking for this like flavors from the homeland and Indian Chinese is such a ubiquitous part of that that like my parents were also very excited. I think we drove to New York to eat at this Indian Chinese place. Like we we took the trip. I would believe that. You know, it's it really hit me um in terms of you know how how significant it is um in the cuisine in India we, uh, around 20 years ago we went on a road trip in in Karnataka like seeing like smaller temple towns and and the like and um we were my brother and I were like so thrilled to see like you know hakka noodles and stuff on the menu in like a normal like roadside joint 
And my parents were like, wow, like you can get it anywhere. And, and it's not something that, you know, you have to go to, you know, go out to like a formal restaurant for. Um, and that's when, like, imagine if that's, and I'm sure that was, it was there prior to that. So that's just like the moment that is there in my memory. And that was around 2000. So I'm sure, um, it's, it's just like in the net in the last 20 years, even more. Shit, it just hit me that 2000 was 20 years ago. <laughs> that, like, that really hurt me. Time. It hurts. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Veda, I agree with you. Uh, in my nani's place, which is kind of a small town in Karnataka, spicy gobi manchurian or cauliflower manchurian uh, is like a very popular street food and it's one of the uh, my, so my brother loves it uh, so every time he goes we went to uh, that place we would go get spicy gobi manchurian for him and it's like it's like this fiery red color which when you when you look at it you're like oh my god i don't know what's going to happen to me but it's uh, it's actually pretty good gobi um, manchurian is so good and can we talk about how I love this about India? Everything has a vegetarian counterpart, right? Because so much of the populace is vegetarian. Like, I don't think the Chinese were like, we're going to do the same thing with cauliflower. But in India, you can find anything <laughs> and make it vegetarian. In the research and in the reporting that I was reading about um, the development of the food um, and these dishes, that's what they point out, that it caters both to the spicy palate and to the vegetarian demands and every almost every meat dish has its own vegetarian counterpart so that's that's also something that like when i actually i i mean i was prepared for it mentally uh, but when i went to visit china um in 2015 (laughs) i was like okay uh it's gonna be tough it's gonna be tough so neither of us have been to china so how like it's really different, right? It's really different from American Chinese and Indian Chinese. So <laughs> it's like nothing I was prepared for. And I think it would still be easier if I ate meat. But as a vegetarian, and I think it's similar, I think, in in, in Thailand and to some degree in Japan, where all these, you know, have been like kind of appropriated or, or adapted into like having a lot of vegetarian options and we consider them to be very vegetarian friendly but in like the native country they don't con- like th- conceive of them without meat so a lot of like the sauces or the curries will be made in something like a fish paste or you know, something like with some seafood or meat. Um, so it's very hard to just be like, can you just take it out? Or how can you create something separate? And it's definitely not on the menu. And so in China, I was I was advised to basically explain like that, say that I'm looking for like Buddhist food or, or that oh. I'm Buddhist. Um, and so then they understood like I didn't want meat. Also, there was like a language issue because I didn't speak Mandarin. So I was like translating and using apps and stuff. That's what I used to say. And then I would get like kind of you know, boiled vegetables kind of a thing. Um, so it was pretty simple um, to to some degree, yeah. Uh, to go to a 2,000, 3,000-year-old civilization and eat boiled vegetables. <laughs> That's a dream. But like in Japan, I think you told me that you finally gave up on fish sauce, right? Because they just put it in everything. So you were just like, 
fine. It's okay. Absolutely. I mean, and also this, it depends on where you go, you know? So it's like, if you're going to a smaller local joint, it's going to be harder. And this is true both in, um, in China and in Japan. And then in the more, um, in both places, when you go to a more like modern uh, or upscale restaurant where they're like familiar with, they have a clientele that's more vegetarian or more international, they do offer a lot of different options. But I was reporting in Fukushima. It was like, okay, I'm just going to have to have, have the soup with the fish in it and not eat the fish and the sauce. And the salad was okay. So I think there was a... In, it was an article in Time magazine that was talking about the development of American Chinese food. And it was like, chop suey was like the greatest culinary prank of the time. <laughs> there's actually, um, in Padma Lakshmi's uh, miniseries, Taste the Nation, there's actually a great episode about chop suey. And she talks to like some of the original, like or descendants of the original Chinese restaurants owners who were like, it seemed to work. People were buying it. So we just sold it. Like, you know, but I just have to say, my own tiny little soapbox, American Chinese food has to step it up. It is just not doing it. Like, I came, I once ordered chow mein in America, and I thought it was, like, going to be, like, the spicy noodles that I'd had in India, and it was, like, boiled. I don't know. Guys, I'm just saying, take a leaf out of your Indian Chinese cookbook and make it spicier. Do something. So if you go to India and order American chop suey, uh, it's kind of sweet and sourish in taste. <laughs> it's just, uh, I mean, it is what it is. I don't, I'm, I'm not a big fan. But uh, I also read that in Bangladesh, Chinese kawa, again, mispronouncing it probably, which means to eat Chinese food, often sim- simply meant, oh, let's go eat out in a restaurant. Because oh. Chinese was so ubiquitous, apparently, in Dhaka eateries. So, like, going out is synonymous with Chinese food. That's so cool. It's it, That kind of reminded me, you know how there's, like, our Jewish nurse can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's, like, that stereotype that Jewish people often order Chinese food on Christmas Day because it's the only thing that's open that day. Like, I love how these, like, little traditions, like, Chinese food has become such a part of life kind of globally that it's made its way into all of these different cultural traditions. It has penetrated into like the culinary methods of other, you know, Indian foods. I don't know if anyone's had a Shezuan dosa, but it's a thing. <laughs> um, and is something called idli chili, uh, which I haven't had, but... I have had chili idli. It's kind of, it's essentially, it's kind of like gobi manchurian, but with idli. <laughs> so the idli is deep, is deep fried? Yeah. Okay. Gotta get me some cornstarch. <laughs> You're in India. I just ordered. <laughs> Maybe this is going to be a project for the week. New dish to try to replicate. Anything else on Indian? You know, I just want to say that, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about how, like, the history of the community and how it's been so many generations. Now, most of the Chinese restaurants in India and, frankly, the Indian Chinese restaurants in the U.S. are run by Indians or Indian Americans who may not have, you know, any history, who may not be descendants of Chinese immigrants at all. As you're saying, it's so ubiquitous. And it's interesting because there are often, obviously, there are tensions that keep rising up between India and China. Every now and then along its border, currently there has been another flare up. Um, And 
you know, the go-to thing, like, on social media, I don't know why people start this, but is, like, oh, like, boycott, like, like, TikTok's currently banned in India, like, boy, like, ban, like, in Chinese companies or boycott Chinese products, um, very hard to do, um, but there was a, a couple months ago this whole, like, let's boycott Chinese food restaurants, but one, I mean, beyond the fact that it's completely wrong, it also makes no sense and doesn't stick because the one, it's own, these restaurants are owned by Indians, and two, the ch- cuisine is so integrated into Indian food that nobody really wants to boycott it. So, <laughs> so that one, they can ban TikTok, but they can't ban Manchuria. I mean, I think we would be remiss in not mentioning the fact that, like, a lot of the Chinese people who had been living in India for a while after the 1962 Indian Indochina War were put in internment camps, and in, and some of them who used to live in Assam were actually deported back to China for being, quote, spies, even though they were like just regular people living regular lives. But I think that calls for its own episode. But I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, there was something I came across like in this research and it was I was really horrified to learn that. And I think, yeah, it's something for us to delve into. Okay, so my Daisy thing for this week um, has also has to do with immigration, but mine actually has to do with immigration into the United States. So one of the first mass migrations from India to the U.S. happened between the late 1800s through the early 1900s when thousands of Punjabi men came to California's Central and Imperial Valley as farmers. But xenophobic laws such as the California Alien Land Act of 1917 prevented these men from bringing wives from India and created a really unique problem for this community, right? Like there were all these men, they but they wanted to start families, they wanted to like establish a life here, but they weren't allowed to bring women from India. So many of these men ended up marrying Mexican women who they were working on their farms with. And this led to this creation of this really interesting fusion of culture and food in the early 1900s in California that's slowly dying out. And honestly, I'd never heard about this. These what at the time were called Hindu-Mexican marriages. They were called Hindu because of Hindustan. Actually, 85% of the men who came to California were sick. 10% were uh, Muslim. So there were actually very few Hindus in that community. But it led to, you know, about 400 of these marriages happened. And it just created this um, really interesting, like, Catholic Sikh culture where they would eat rice and beans, which kind of reminded the Punjabi men of Rajma Chavel, also take their kids to, like, church, but, like, go to the Gurdwara every four weeks or whatever, whenever they could drive down to it. So I was really kind of excited to learn about this community. That is so fascinating. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. Were the laws, did they like uh, discourage uh, the Punjabi men from marrying white women as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there were, they're called miscegenation laws, right? Where you're not allowed to marry outside of your race. But the interesting thing about it is that, I mean, the law is inherently racist, but it's like so myopically racist because it basically means brown slash black people cannot marry white people. But nobody had any issues with Indian men marrying Mexican women because they were both, quote, brown. So in the eyes of, you know, the administration or the government or whatever, 
they're um, the same race, which again, just goes, race is just a stupid social construct, right? Like they don't, they didn't understand that these people were from like vastly different parts of the world, but because they were brown and they're not marrying a white guy or a white woman rather, totally fine. So interesting, like two communities, two immigrant communities, one largely male at the time, one largely female, both seen as non-white, and that kind of creates this melded community. Yeah, and, you know, some interviews from uh, children of these marriages talk about how Punjabi men often turn to Mexican women, partially because, like, you know, they would get to know them, they're working on farms with them, like a camaraderie builds up, but... They also both come from like rural farming communities. So they kind of had that in common. And Punjabi men would often say that Mexican women resembled Punjabi women. So they were like, they kind of like saw a bit of home in the faces of these women and thus like approached them for marriage. And the way it often happened is like one Punjabi guy would marry one sister like his friend would marry her sister. Sometimes like a much older Punjabi gentleman would marry the mom if, you know, there was no other man in the situation. So it developed into this like very close knit community because often families like families of Mexican women would marry all would marry Punjabi men. So they kind of celebrated everything together. They would do Christmas, but they would also do like Guru Nanak's birthday. Like it was it must have been like a fascinating fusion of cultures. What were the cultural traditions or religious traditions that they kept and like passed on to the next generation, like in terms of like food or religion or other practices? Yeah. So um, the Punjabi men like taught the Mexican women how to cook, like they would want their food from their home, right? So they taught them like how to make curries and paratas, which they called like they used to call all flatbreads rotis. Some people actually think that like, you know how in Indian food, everything is a curry in America, right? Like there's, which is not a term we often use in India for like all of our various um, side dishes or whatever. They think that this kind of started here where any meat or vegetable would be called a curry. And that's, they would just call it like, they just like uniformly, anything that was gravy based was called a curry. And that is thought to have started here. That's so interesting. And I also read that some of these uh, Punjabi men would adopt like Spanish names. So for Mag- so Magga became Miguel, Inder became Andreas, and uh, and I think Muhammad became Mondo. So uh, some of these Sikh or whatever Hindu, quote unquote Hindu men would ad- adopt Spanish names. And so a lot of these people apparently came to this part of the world as part of the British Imperial uh, Police or Armed Forces and also were looking for work in the agricultural sector, uh, mills and railroad jobs. So a lot of these people came to look for employment in these uh, these industries. And what's kind of interesting is that um, in the late 1800s, you see the gold rush happen in America, right? So all of these like agricultural workers people who worked in railroads leave those jobs, white um, men leave those jobs to go to California to start looking for gold because it was thought to be easy money at this time. So it just created this vacuum of work that these guys were really just able to nicely fit into because they wanted to leave India and make more money because there were like also land laws there that were not allowing them to own land in India. Um, And 
there were all these like farming opportunities here. Unfortunately, that um, that California Alien Land Act of 1917 prevented them from owning land in California as well. So they would, again, a benefit of marrying a Mexican woman would often be if she'd been born in the United States or if they had a child, that child could technically own land. So a lot of the land would be in the name of the wife or the children so that these men could establish farms in this community. Wow. You know, the um, the laws, like, can you imagine, like, that sounds so, like, traumatic where it's like, you know, you... You can't own land for whatever reason um, in your home country. You immigrate somewhere else. You can't own land there. You have to, you know, hope that your progeny be able to hold on to it um, and become like U.S. citizens. Uh, were their children allowed to be U.S. citizens because they were born there? Their children, I think, because they were born on U.S. land were technically U.S. citizens. So I don't think, but I think their children also faced a lot of racism. These men faced a lot of racism when they came to California because, I mean, they were thought to be like, I don't know, I read things about um, how they were thought to be like unclean and um, less desirable or the most undesirable of all the Eastern Asiatic races which have come to share our soil is a quote from a California state report in 1920. And it says the Hindu's lack of personal cleanliness, his low morale, and his blind adherence to theories and teachings so entirely repugnant to American principles. I remember reading a newspaper headline. I, I can't remember the paper, but it said, heavy or dusky peril, uh, hordes of, quote, Hindus, whatever, are like swarming the land or a quote of some sort like that. So there was a headline in like screaming 72 point font on one of the newspapers. Is this in Yuba Valley? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I remember reading about how Yuba Valley, even now, has a very large Punjabi and Sikh community. So is that, like, how this started? It is how this started, right? They come there originally as farmers. And then, like many immigrant communities, right? Like, when a new wave of immigration starts to happen in 1965, after Lyndon Johnson changes immigration rules... People go to the place where there are already some Indians established, right? And that actually had a really kind of sad effect on these Punjabi Mexican unions because, so let's backtrack for a second. The quote I read talked about how they like really adhered to their like principles and their teachings, right? That was because even once they got here, they established Gurdwaras, they would practice their religion. A lot of them cut their beards and removed their turbans because of all the hate they were facing, but they were still practicing, you know, cultural, like cultural and religious practices stayed alive in this community. Um, so once uh, women are start in 1965, women are uh, like allowed to come into America some of these Punjabi men left their Mexican wives, very few, but there is some documentation of that. But what's sadder is that these Mexican women who had adopted this culture would go to the Gurdwara to cook and, you know, be a part of it, even though they remained Catholic, but they would part they would participate in their husband's culture, were slowly pushed out by um, the Indian women who immigrated later and like looked down upon and thought about like thought of as like less than. There's actually a report that a Punjabi woman from India accused a Mexican woman of poisoning 
her or the community at a langar in a gurdwara because there was just so like it built up to so much animosity and the Punjabi women were like no these Mexican women can't cook in our religious places like again like it just it's a sad story of like racism begets racism begets racism from like all sides you know I was reading also that Perhaps before that, um, within even like the Mexican community, there were some tensions amongst like the women who married Indian men and the Mexican women who married who didn't and who married Mexican men. And just um, so there were there was tension on like multiple sides and layers. Yeah, you're right. I, I mean, the opposite also, when these Mexican women married the Punjabi men, their community, the Mexican community would look down upon these women who married out of, quote unquote, out married out of their own. So, I mean, <laughs> it's just everybody being super... There's a lot of bias internally in these communities and intra, outside, from white people. So there's there's the good and the bad also. Yeah, I mean, it's tough, right? Like these people were just trying to establish lives and families here and were kind of facing pushback. But from what I've read, um, and uh, Karen Leonard is a professor who's done like the majority of the research about these communities. I think any article you read about this, she's cited. So definitely she deserves a shout out. But what she said was that it, it resulted in about 400 to 500 marriages. And that was a really tight knit group. And Initially, I thought that was like, oh, that's so sweet. Like they like made this little community. But it also sounds like they had to, right? They were facing rejection from every angle. But the children of these marriages were by no means like, you know, pressured to stay within the community. So it's kind of dissipated, um, right? Like nobody really talks about these unions because there's so many other Indians in America now. Uh, but they try to like keep, part of this culture alive and in Yuba Valley they often host like a Mexican Hindu Christmas dance which used to be really popular because there were so many kids from these unions but the last report in 2008 said that it only drew like a handful of people so like it's um, people are now paying attention to it I think like I mentioned Karen Leonard there's just people um, drawing attention to like what happened at this time because it was such a unique event but um, yeah this culture kind of like what Vela was saying about the Chinatowns of India is dying and it definitely deserves to be like, you know, studied and discussed. And I think we have a lot to learn. Perhaps unrelated to this community. Like now there's a lot of like Indian Mexican fusion because it, it's such a, there's the cuisines have so many similar elements with rice and beans and stuff and vegetables as well. But in this, um, you know, it's just interesting to kind of learn about how, these marriages kind of and this community this tight-knit community kind of figured out how to meld it together much earlier and because they actually had a like they had like a real cultural familial reason to um and i was reading both sides of it which is that one they did kind of do some fusion dishes um Mm -hmm. and that like there was, you know, like a roti quesadilla that like later also got branded like an Indian pizza and that like some dishes were made with Spanish rice instead of like 
Indian style like basmati rice but they also were like we're not going to just create a bunch of fusion dishes we will have some Mexican dishes and we'll have some Indian dishes and they'll like both of these cuisines will exist so it was there was some fusion but it was also like respecting both sides of of um, the food culture. There's a really great Eater article by Sonia Chopra, and she like you know, she chronicles kind of these um, this mixture of cultures. And at the end, she discusses this new like roti tacos and all this stuff. And she has a quote from a child of one of these Punjabi Mexican marriages who's like, "Yeah, that's not us." Like you know, they were like, "This is just like the fusion food that's coming around." We didn't do that. We like ate Punjabi food and we ate Mexican food. So yeah, there's definitely a fusion of cultures, but kind of in a more organic way. It's not, you know, it's not like Rogan Josh tacos. Like that's not what we're doing. To be fair, that actually does sound good. Oh, no, I think it'd be delicious. <laughs> Vida, have you had Rogan Josh? No, but I mean, I'm just saying for those that eat it, <laughs> oh, okay. it will be great. <laughs> Any kind of like gravy. Indian filling with a taco tastes good. So let's go all the way. Chicken Manchurian tacos. Uh, Coming back to the food of this community, like you mentioned how they used the word roti for like all flatbread, like including paratha. I think, you know, it's interesting because now it goes both like another way. Like um, it's when my parents in the 90s were like looking for roti, like it was hard to get it. Like there weren't so many Indian stores and stuff. And like now you can get so much like frozen and and stuff um, already made. Um, And so they like just settled on the tortillas that they could get. And so now for for my dad, like roti is the tortilla. Like he just, he would prefer to eat that now. Um, So that he like now, even though we can get frozen rotis, he eats frozen tortillas. But also, like, my parents had a tortilla maker that they used as a roti maker. Because my dad was like, it's great. It makes really rounded, flat rotis. Like, you adapt. Cultures adapt. (laughs) That's, like, the central theme of this podcast is, like, what did Americans do? Or what did, rather, Indians do in America to make food that they couldn't find here? So my thing for today is this amazing story of this Indian princess who became a spy for the Allied forces and helped fight the Nazis from within France. All right, so I'm bringing the woman fact this week. <laughs> yeah, so I think I found this amazing story, and uh, so her name is her name was Noor Inayat Khan. She was the first female wireless operator to be sent in as a spy in German-occupied France, and she essentially held that post for three months, I think, which is way more than the average lifespan of the wireless operator during that time. And she was the only link between Paris and London, and she would bravely send information um, back to to the UK and help, essentially help sabotage um, Nazi operations and help allied forces from within German-occupied Paris. That's awesome. She sounds like a badass. Yeah. So she's a descendant of Tipu Sultan, who is this Indian king who fought the British in the 1700s. And uh, so she was born to this uh, Sufi musician. Her dad was a Sufi musician born in India in Baroda. And he was he used to travel all around the world. Uh, he met uh, his wife, Noor's mother, who was an, actually an American woman uh, in America. And uh, the family ended up traveling to Moscow. And that's where Noor was born. And eventually uh, their travels 
took them to Paris where Noor grew up so she actually grew up in in a suburb outside of the city of Paris and when the Germans invaded Paris she and her family escaped to Britain and that's how she ended up in the war effort she's so interesting she's fascinating because we don't talk about well we don't talk about enough south asian women who've done amazing things in general but like we don't talk about people from south asia and their role in world war ii she can't have been the only one i'm sure but like what an interesting woman um they also like she wasn't initially very good at her job right like i read somewhere that people had a lot of doubts about her they kind of tried to send her back and told her she couldn't do this like coding teleoperating thing. That's right. A lot of this information comes from this great book that I read called Spy Princess uh, by this uh, actually Indian author who now lives in London. Uh, her name is Shrabani Basu. So she actually has been, uh, uh, Ms. Basu has been kind of instrumental in getting Nurinayat Khan the recognition because she's, uh, Noor is kind of like, uh, She's she's the recipient of the Croix de Guerre or War Cross, which is like the highest civilian honor in France. She's uh, she's got like the George Cross, which is she's only one of the three women uh, to have received that. Like it's a British highest award, which is insane. And the fact that she's I believe she's the first South Asian woman to get a blue plaque that is installed outside her house in London. Um, and it's this is a great honor in Britain for people who are important in history and famous people. So she's the first South Asian woman to get that. So, but uh, going coming back to what you were saying, yeah, she was, uh, there were doubts about her. People thought she, she when she was training and when she um, was learning how to do this, she used to leave uh, like quotes lying around. People thought she, uh, this is kind of mean, but like one of the quotes uh, I think said something to the effect of she's not overburdened with brains or something like that. So she was part of this, uh, the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, where she expressed a desire to volunteer for the war and like had signed up for this service. She was selected for this uh, group, the spy group called Special Operations Executive, which was Churchill, Churchill's initiative, essentially to aid the French resistance from within France and like kind of try to sabotage German operations by like uh, exposing information, like reconnaissance and all of those things. And the reason uh, Noor and uh, there were other women too, and the reason they were part of this group was that because there were just not enough men to sign up for this. She's known now by her like her code name, right? Like Madeline. That's right. So she interviewed for this job called special operations uh, for the special operations executive uh, one of the reasons she was chosen for the job was because she spoke french fluently fluently uh, and like a native and they were looking for people who would speak french and would not betray their british uh, origin so uh, so that it would help people move around more uh, easily so as part of this unit like she learned how to handle guns like explosives she learned how to kill people like she learned morse code she already knew how to operate the wireless radio so her job was essentially to go into france and like and she went and became part of this uh, soe like circuit or group called prosper so their job was to just send information back to uk to london about what's happening in paris 
and like just a week after she joined her whole network was exposed like somebody i think betrayed them and like uh, all of the agents that that whole group that she was part of they were captured by the gestapo she was the only one who uh, managed to escape before being captured and london sent her a message saying come back because it's really dangerous for you and it's like you're the only one left and she said oh yeah if i'm the only one left i should stay back here and i should help people out because she was the only link remaining between paris and london so she stayed back and she did the work of essentially six people and sending back messages and um all of that there's a really cool documentary that we'll link in our show notes but like this woman stayed in london she became like a master of disguise right because the Germans were there. They know what she looks like after a little while. So she had to keep changing her look. She ch- dyed her hair blonde. Like she would change her name. She would change her location. Like she is, this is wild. Like for three months, this girl who for all intents and purposes grew up very sheltered, like wrote children's books, grew up in this very like philosophical Sufi environment was like a badass in Paris. Like, she escaped the Gestapo many times. There's this awesome story in the documentary where she had to like uh, stretch out her wireless radio, right? Like she had to make that wire thing. Like, I don't know, you had to do something to it to strategic. The aerial. Yeah. I mean, she had to put up an aerial so that it would transmit the message. Yeah. So you had to do that in like, you needed space to do that. And one day she just like ran out of safe houses and she was doing it in a park and a German soldier found her and he was like, what are you doing? And instead of like freaking out or whatever, she flirted with this man and was like, I just want to listen to my radio. Like I need to listen to my jazz or whatever. And she sweet talked him and he helped her set it up. Like this young girl, like give me like 50% of that confidence, you know, like she, and she was driven by this sense of purpose, which they also talk about a lot with her, right? Like she really like once, she started training they were like this is like in the pursuit of truth in the pursuit of this like greater good whatever and she was just really driven by that and that's why she didn't leave to her own peril and i also read that at the time india was still part of the british empire right and she said indians must have independence and like she was very connected to india and she had to take over her uh, like taking care of her family because her father was indian he was born in baroda and when he went back to India, he died there. So at the age of 13, she had to kind of take care of her family. She was the eldest daughter. And um, she was very supportive of the Indian independence movement. And she said, after the war, I'm going to support that. And she told her bosses, who were part of the British Empire, saying, you guys must give India independence. And um, she was very upfront with them. And I think they kind of respected her for that because she was known to be this righteous person who would just say what is right and would not really care for the consequences. I I read that even when she was, um, you know, captured and kept in prison, she was so persistent. Like she managed to like send messages to her like fellow prisoners and she like she never really like gave up like she wasn't even though like they i think tortured her a lot potentially i mean she was labeled dangerous highly dangerous but also potentially because she was a woman of color they may have tortured her even more um and but still like you know her spirit was still there 
Yeah, and she. Uh, so I think she's the first uh, woman to go to a German prison. I believe, at least that's according to the book. Because um, she was caught uh, at the time. A wireless radio operator was supposed to be the one of the most dangerous jobs, besides being in the army, of course. But one of the most dangerous jobs out there in Paris, and the average lifespan of a wireless radio operator was six weeks. And she managed to hold on for um, three months. And during those three months, she did some amazing things. Like she was, um, like I mentioned, she was doing the work of six agents. Uh, she would help send back locations of locations for arms drops, uh, supply money and arms to the French resistance, and also try to organize like safe passages for injured uh, Air Force uh, pilots and airmen who who were in uh, who were in France. So it was it was insane what she managed. She only got caught because she was betrayed. She was betrayed by a person she trusted, who was the sister of her group leader, and that person was a you know a spy or a mole for the Germans, and that's what led to her downfall. If she hadn't been betrayed, who knows how long she would have eluded the Gestapo. Yeah, I read in the book that she was just about to leave France before getting betrayed. And I think the sister of the group uh, group leader betrayed her for 100,000 francs. So she was captured and kept in German prison out of... Uh, like she managed to... She nearly managed to escape from there twice as well. So she joined this uh, women's acting auxiliary air force uh, in at the age of 26. And eventually at the age of 30... She was taken to Dachau and um, executed, and they said her last words was uh, words or last word was liberté, which I guess means freedom in French. Um, I also want to mention that the Dachau concentration camp is the model for all other concentration camps in Germany. So, and I've been there. It is if you I don't know if you ever get a chance to go to any of these camps, you should because it is. I think the. It's just overwhelming when you walk in and you see what you see the infrastructure, you see how they they imprison people. That it's just I I don't have any words for it. I, I, thanks, thanks for sharing that. That's really interesting that you've been there. I haven't been there, been to any. I haven't vis- physically visited any of the European concentration camps. I think it would be really tough. I mean, I know you texted me and you were like, I you don't know what to think when you're in there. Like it's very haunting. It's, yeah, it is. So Noor, who's remembered, I believe, as Madeleine in France, is she well-known in France? Or is this like a story that's now kind of coming out because of the book and some other media? She's remembered as a heroine of the resistance. And so there is a there is also a plaque outside her family home in city, just outside on the on the outskirts of Paris. So a band plays outside her house every year on Bastille Day, which I can only imagine is such a big occasion in in France. Um, there's a uh, there's a square named after her, Course de Madeleine, I think, or Course Madeleine. I <laughs> that's probably shit French pronunciation, but um, the mayor of Paris described her as a modern day Joan of Arc, and I can I cannot imagine a bigger honor le- than that in France. <laughs> So she's actually pretty well known in uh, France. Uh, she's relatively known in the UK, but that's largely because of this uh, Shrabani Basu's um, 
efforts. She campaigned a lot uh, for recognition. She wrote letters to MPs and like she she I think established the Noor Inayat Khan Memorial Trust in London. So she is quite instrumental in getting recognition for uh, Noor Inayat Khan because she wrote uh, so Shabani Basu wrote the book back in 2006. So the book is quite old and was published in India by Roli Books. So and I don't think in India people know about Noor Inayat Khan much. I didn't know it. They will be soon because now I think there's I think there's a movie and like Radhika Apte's I think it's come out is play, is playing her. I read that there's a series uh, where Frida Pinto is going to play her that's going to be coming out. So it sounds like her story is now going to reach more people. Really glad they're telling this story, right? Like I wish it was more mainstream uh Indian cinema that was also going to tell the story, right? The Frida Pinto one is a BBC production? The Frida Pinto one is a BBC production. She there has also been recently been uh, in January last year a Doctor Who episode called Spyfall which features I think a Noor Inayat Khan's story. Where where are my Whovians at? I'm going to watch this episode. <laughs> in terms of like her motivation, um multiple things and I was reading some essay thing by Shrabani Basu herself and or maybe it was an excerpt from the book somewhere else. She was really motivated and perhaps she and her brother also because like her father, because of his like, you know, Sufi philosophy, the values they'd grown up with in their house. She was really troubled by what the Nazis were doing. Um, but then there was also this like potential more personal element. When she was in college, she was also studying music and she fell in love with a Jewish musician and she wanted to marry him but there was like opposition um it's not clear like from whose family um and that relationship didn't end up working out but that was also something that may have potentially um you know been her motivation to like fight against the nazis that's so interesting you're right the he she was engaged to this jewish musician pianist i think called goldberg but uh, i think like the relationship uh, itself kind of fizzled out and over the period of whatever she was engaged to him for a few years but like she eventually felt like the relationship would not work out and she broke off the engagement uh, but you were right her her uh, her background and her teachings and her father's teachings were an integral part of why why she decided to sign up for the for for, for the war effort it's so fascinating like their her life seems like there's so many elements i mean i can just i can visualize it like it's so like rife for like dramatic adaptation you know like each stage seems to have just so many like fascinating elements and she's like the ideal protagonist right because she is truly like it's a real life person who was driven by this like desire to do good and perpetuate these philosophies that she was taught her whole life like i I'm fascinated by this woman. I think she deserves a lot of like adaptations and books. Like let's teach little girls about people like this. Well, going back to Veda your your thing from I think last week or the week before where your mom was looking for role models. That's what that was one of the reasons why Ms. Basu also decided to write this book because she wanted to a highlight the contribution of South Asians to both first and second world wars. and she wanted uh, she wanted more role models for south asian women because there's such a big population in the uk about uh, of them and i think it's important right like we highlight women south asian women um 
on the subcontinent and what they've done on the subcontinent. But they have had a global impact as well, right? And I think it's important. I think I my hat's off to Sharbani Basu for really highlighting one that had international consequences. Like, right, her life was so meaningful. And I'm just, I'm really glad we got a chance to talk about this. I also just want to say, I really like this path that Three Daisy Things is going on, where we talk about important South Asian women. I think there aren't enough places where that's done. So I'm glad that this is, we're taking that road. All right, that was it. That was another episode of Three Daisy Things. Hope you enjoyed it. Please follow us on Instagram at Three Daisy Things or on Twitter at Three Daisy Things. And our website is Three Daisy Things.com and you can write to us at Three Daisy Things at gmail.com. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, leave a comment. It helps others find our show. And yeah, keep wearing those masks, get that vaccine, keep washing those hands, and we will see you in two weeks.